section sixteen of volume one b of history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. reading by robin cotter history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight by david hume Volume One B, Section Sixteen, Chapter Thirteen, Part Eight. The spirit with which this discourse was delivered, the bold sentiments which it conveyed, the novelty of Bruce's declaration, assisted by the graces of his youth and manly deportment, made deep impression on the minds of his audience, and roused all those principles of indignation and revenge with which they had so long been secretly actuated. The Scottish nobles declared their unanimous resolution to use the utmost efforts in delivering their country from bondage, and to second the courage of Bruce in asserting his and their undoubted rights against their common oppressors. Cummin alone, who had secretly taken his measures with the king, opposed this general determination, and by representing the great power of England, governed by a prince of such uncommon vigor and abilities, he endeavored to set before them the certain destruction which they must expect if they again violated their oaths of fealty and shook off their allegiance to the victorious Edward. Bruce, already apprised of his treachery, and foreseeing the certain failure of all his own schemes of ambition and glory from the opposition of so potent a leader, took immediately his resolution, and moved partly by resentment, partly by policy, followed Cummin on the dissolution of the assembly, attacked him in the cloisters of the Grey Friars, through which he passed, and running him through the body, left him for dead. Sir Thomas Kirkpatrick, one of Bruce's friends, asking him soon after if the traitor were slain, "'I believe so,' replied Bruce. "'And is that a matter,' cried Kirkpatrick, "'to be left to conjecture? I will secure him.' Upon which he drew his dagger, ran to Cummin, and stabbed him in the heart. This deed of Bruce and his associates, which contains circumstances justly condemned by our present manners, was regarded in that age as an effort of manly vigor and just policy. The family of Kirkpatrick took for the crest of their arms, which they still wear, a hand with a bloody dagger, and chose for their motto these words, I will secure him, the expression employed by their ancestor when he executed that violent action. The murder of Cummin affixed the seal to the conspiracy of the Scottish nobles. They had now no resource left but to shake off the yoke of England, or to perish in the attempt. The genius of the nation roused itself from its present dejection, and Bruce, flying to different quarters, excited his partisans to arms, attacked with success the dispersed bodies of the English, got possession of many of the castles, and having made his authority be acknowledged in most parts of the kingdom, was solemnly crowned and inaugurated in the Abbey of Scone by the Bishop of St. Andrews, who had zealously embraced his cause. The English were again chased out of the kingdom, except such as took shelter in the fortresses that still remained in their hands, and Edward found that the Scots, twice conquered in his reign, and often defeated, must yet be anew subdued. Not discouraged with these unexpected difficulties, he sent Aymer de Valence with a considerable force into Scotland, to check the progress of the malcontents, and that nobleman, falling unexpectedly upon Bruce at Methven in Perthshire, threw his army into such disorder as ended in a total defeat. 
Bruce fought with the most heroic courage, was thrice dismounted in the action, and as often recovered himself, but was at last obliged to yield to superior fortune and take shelter with a few followers in the Western Isles. The Earl of Athol, Sir Simon Fraser, and Sir Christopher Seaton, who had been taken prisoners, were ordered by Edward to be executed as rebels and traitors. Many other acts of rigour were exercised by him, and that prince, vowing revenge against the whole Scottish nation, whom he deemed incorrigible in their aversion to his government, assembled a great army, and was preparing to enter the frontiers, secure of success, and determined to make the defenceless Scots the victims of his severity, when he unexpectedly sickened and died near Carlisle, enjoining with his last breath his son and successor to prosecute the enterprise, and never to desist till he had finally subdued the kingdom of Scotland. He expired in the sixty-ninth year of his age, and the thirty-fifth of his reign, hated by his neighbours, but extremely respected and revered by his own subjects. The enterprises finished by this prince, and the projects which he formed and brought near to a conclusion, were more prudent, more regularly conducted, and more advantageous to the solid interests of his kingdom than those which were undertaken in any reign, either of his ancestors or his successors. He restored authority to the government, disordered by the weakness of his father. He maintained the laws against all the efforts of his turbulent barons. He fully annexed to his crown the Principality of Wales. He took many wise and vigorous measures for reducing Scotland to a like condition, and though the equity of this latter enterprise may reasonably be questioned, the circumstances of the two kingdoms promised such certain success, and the advantage was so visible of uniting the whole island under one head, that those who give great indulgence to reasons of state in the measures of princes will not be apt to regard this part of his conduct with much severity. But Edward, however exceptionable his character may appear on the head of justice, is the model of a politic and warlike king." He possessed industry, penetration, courage, vigilance, and enterprise. He was frugal in all expenses that were not necessary. He knew how to open the public treasures on a proper occasion. He punished criminals with severity. He was gracious and affable to his servants and courtiers, and being of a majestic figure, expert in all military exercises, and in the main well proportioned in his limbs, notwithstanding the great length and the smallness of his legs, he was as well qualified to captivate the populace by his exterior appearance as to gain the approbation of men of sense by his more solid virtues. But the chief advantage which the people of England reaped, and still continue to reap, from the reign of this great prince, was the correction, extension, amendment, and establishment of the laws which Edward maintained in great vigour, and left much improved to posterity, for the acts of a wise legislator commonly remain while the acquisition of a conqueror often perish with him. This merit has justly gained to Edward the appellation of the English Justinian. Not only the numerous statutes passed in his reign touch the chief points of jurisprudence, and, according to Sir Edward Coke, truly deserve the name of establishments, because they were more constant, standing, and durable laws than any made since, but the regular order maintained in his administration gave an opportunity to the common law to refine itself, and brought the judges to a certainty in their determinations, and the lawyers to a precision in their pleadings. 
Sir Matthew Hale has remarked the sudden improvement of English law during this reign, and ventures to assert that till his own time it had never received any considerable increase. Edward settled the jurisdiction of the several courts, first established the office of Justice of Peace, abstained from the practice, too common before him, of interrupting justice by mandates from the Privy Council, repressed robberies, and Edward enacted a law to this purpose, but it is doubtful whether he ever observed it. We are sure that scarcely any of his successors did. The multitude of these disorders encouraged trade, by giving merchants an easy method of recovering their debts, and, in short, introduced a new face of things by the vigor and wisdom of his administration. As law began now to be well established, the abuse of that blessing began also to be remarked. Instead of their former associations for robbery and violence, men entered into formal combinations to support each other in lawsuits, and it was found requisite to check this iniquity by act of Parliament. There happened in this reign a considerable alteration in the execution of the laws. The king abolished the office of chief justiciary, which he thought possessed too much power and was dangerous to the crown. He completed the division of the court of exchequer into four distinct courts, which managed each its several branch, without dependence on any one magistrate, and as the lawyers afterwards invented a method, by means of their fictions, of carrying business from one court to another, the several courts became rivals and checks to each other, a circumstance which tended much to improve the practice of the law in England. But though Edward appeared thus throughout his whole reign a friend to law and justice, it cannot be said that he was an enemy to arbitrary power, and in a government more regular and legal than was that of England in his age, such practices as those which may be remarked in his administration would have given sufficient ground of complaint, and sometimes were even in his age the object of general displeasure. The violent plunder and banishment of the Jews, the putting of the whole clergy at once, and by an arbitrary edict out of the protection of law, the seizing of all the wool and leather of the kingdom, the heightening of the impositions on the former valuable commodity, the new and illegal commission of Trailbaston, the taking of all the money and plate of monasteries and churches, even before he had any quarrel with the clergy, the subjecting of every man possessed of twenty pounds a year to military service, though by the statute of Northampton, passed in the second of Edward the Third, but it still continued, like many other abuses, there are instances of it so late as the reign of Queen Elizabeth." The chief obstacle to the execution of justice in those times was the power of the great barons, and Edward was perfectly qualified, by his character and abilities, for keeping these tyrants in awe, and restraining their illegal practices. This salutary purpose was accordingly the great object of his attention, yet he was imprudently led into a measure which tended to increase and confirm their dangerous authority. He passed a statute, which, by allowing them to entail their estates, made it impracticable to diminish the property of the great families, and left them every means of increase and acquisition. Edward observed a contrary policy with regard to the church. He seems to have been the first Christian prince that passed a statute of Mortmain, and prevented by law the clergy from making new acquisitions of lands, which by the ecclesiastical canons they were forever prohibited from alienating. The opposition between his maxims with regard to the nobility and to the ecclesiastics leads us to conjecture that it was only by chance he passed the beneficial statute of Mortmain, and that his sole object was to maintain the number of knights' fees, 
and to prevent the superiors from being defrauded of the profits of wardship, marriage, livery, and other emoluments arising from the feudal tenures. This is indeed the reason assigned in the statute itself, and appears to have been his real object in enacting it. The author of the Annals of Waverley ascribes this act chiefly to the king's anxiety for maintaining the military force of the kingdom, but adds that he was mistaken in his purpose, for that the Amalekites were overcome more by the prayers of Moses than by the sword of the Israelites. The statute of Mortmain was often evaded afterwards by the invention of uses. Edward was active in restraining the usurpations of the church, and accepting his ardor for crusades which adhered to him during his whole life, seems in other respects to have been little infected with superstition, the vice chiefly of weak minds. But the passion for crusades was really in that age the passion for glory. As the Pope now felt himself somewhat more restrained in his former practice of pillaging the several churches in Europe by laying impositions upon them, he permitted the generals of particular orders who resided at rome to levy taxes on the convents subjected to their jurisdiction and edward was obliged to enact a law against this new abuse it was also become a practice of the court of rome to provide successors to benefices before they became vacant edward found it likewise necessary to prevent by law this species of injustice the tribute of one thousand marks a year, to which King John, in doing homage to the Pope, has subjected the kingdom, had been pretty regularly paid since his time, though the vassalage was constantly denied, and indeed, for fear of giving offence, had been but little insisted on. The payment was called by a new name of census, not by that of tribute. King Edward seems to have always paid this money with great reluctance, and he suffered the arrears at one time to run on for six years at another for eleven, but as princes in that age stood continually in need of the Pope's good offices, for dispensations of marriage and for other concessions, the court of Rome always found means, sooner or later, to catch the money. The levying of first fruits was also a new device begun in this reign, by which His Holiness thrust his fingers very frequently into the purses of the faithful, and the king seems to have unwarily given way to it. In the former reign the taxes had been partly scutages, partly such a proportional part of the movables as was granted by Parliament. In this scutages were entirely dropped, and the assessment on movables was the chief method of taxation. Edward, in his fourth year, had a fifteenth granted him, in his fifth year a twelfth, in his eleventh year a thirtieth from the laity, a twentieth from the clergy, in his eighteenth year a fifteenth, in his twenty-second year a tenth from the laity, a sixth from London and other corporate towns, half of their benefices from the clergy. In his twenty-third year an eleventh from the barons and others, a tenth from the clergy, a seventh from the burgesses. In his twenty-fourth year a twelfth from the barons and others, an eighth from the burgesses, from the clergy nothing, because of the Pope's inhibition. In his twenty-fifth year an eighth from the laity, a tenth from the clergy of Canterbury, a fifth from those of York, in his twenty-ninth year a fifteenth from the laity, on account of his confirming the perambulations of the forests, the clergy granted nothing. In his thirty-third year, first a thirtieth from the barons and others, and a twentieth from the burgesses, then a fifteenth from all of his subjects, in his thirty-fourth year a thirtieth from all his subjects, for knighting his eldest son. These taxes were moderate, but the king had also duties upon exportation and importation granted him from time to time. 
The heaviest were commonly upon wool. Poundage, or a shilling a pound, was not regularly granted the kings for life till the reign of Henry V. In 1296 the famous mercantile society called the Merchant Adventurers had its first origin. It was instituted for the improvement of the woolen manufacture, and the vending of the cloth abroad, particularly at Antwerp, for the English at this time scarcely thought of any more distant commerce. The king granted a charter or declaration of protection and privileges to foreign merchants, and also ascertained the customs or duties which those merchants were in return to pay on merchandise imported and exported. He promised them security, allowed them a jury on trials, consisting half of natives, half of foreigners, and appointed them a justiciary in London for their protection. But notwithstanding this seeming attention to foreign merchants, Edward did not free them from the cruel hardship of making one answerable for the debts, and even for the crimes of another that came from the same country. We read of such practices among the present barbarous nations. The king also imposed on them a duty of two shillings on each ton of wine imported, over and above the old duty, and forty pence on each sack of wool exported besides half a mark, the former duty. In the year 1303 the exchequer was robbed, and of no less a sum than one hundred thousand pounds, as is pretended. The abbot and monks of Westminster were indicted for this robbery, but acquitted. It does not appear that the king ever discovered the criminals with certainty, though his indignation fell on the society of Lombard merchants, particularly the Frescobaldi, very opulent Florentines. The Pope, having in 1307 collected much money in England, the King enjoined the nuncio not to export it in specie, but in bills of exchange, a proof that commerce was but ill understood at that time. Edward had, by his first wife, Eleanor of Castile, four sons, but Edward, his heir and successor, was the only one that survived him. She also bore him eleven daughters, most of whom died in their infancy, of the surviving, Joan was married first to the Earl of Gloucester, and after his death to Ralph de Monthemer. Margaret espoused John, Duke of Brabant. Elizabeth espoused first John, Earl of Holland, and afterwards the Earl of Hereford. Mary was a nun at Ambersbury. He had by his second wife, Margaret of France, two sons and a daughter. Thomas created Earl of Norfolk and Marischal of England and Edmund, who was created Earl of Kent by his brother when king. The princess died in her infancy. End of section 16, chapter 13, part 8.